Welcome to this episode of the Navarro Law Podcast, Fraud with Fred on a Friday. My name's Jenna Lee. I'm a senior associate attorney here at Navarro Law with Fred Livingston. He's a partner here at Navarro Law. Fred, how are you doing today? Good morning, Jenna. I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. I certainly appreciate it. All right. Well, I'm very happy to have you, our resident expert on fraud in the No Fault Act and beyond. Um, so, Fred, Fred, tell me a little bit about you know who you are, what you do at Navarro for those who don't already know. I'm a partner here at Navarra Law. I've been a partner here for the last five years. I do handle a lot of fraudulent claims, whether they're no-fault claims, homeowners, insurance claims, uh, any type of vehicle theft, vehicle fire, uh, workers' compensation claims, all those types of claims that Im- involve an element of fraud or even those claims that don't involve an element of fraud. But um, that is one of the areas that we've just seen a a very large increase in those types of claims over the last five years and even prior to that. So you recently gave a presentation at ICL on uh, the billing and coding fraud that you've seen. So I want to go over that a little bit. I want to go over unbundling, upcoding, some Medicare, Medicaid, billing fraud. But I think we need to start off with why is it important and what do reforms have to do with why it's so important? Absolutely. And I was blessed to be able to give a presentation at ICL. I also have given some presentations at IASIU, which is the International Association of Special Investigative Units. And being involved in those organizations is really key in staying in front of these trends and staying up to date on what's going on. The no-fault reforms really did change the, it changed the landscape here in the state of Michigan in many ways but especially when it comes to providers and the amounts that they're able to bill for services. As everyone knows, prior to the no-fault reforms, the only check on a provider's billing charges was whether it was reasonable and necessary. And you can just, well, excuse me, I should say whether it was usual and customary and whether the charges were reasonable. And you can just imagine with such a broad standard how providers were able to really manipulate things and get charges paid for services that they wouldn't be able to get paid anywhere else in the country, which led to the necessity for us to have some no-fault reforms here in the state of Michigan. So previously, for example, you have an MRI provider that's charging $5,000 for MRI. And if all these providers were in the same geographic zip code, they would say, well, this is the usual and customary amount. This is what everybody is charging in this area. They would do phone surveys and say, well, I've called 10 MRI companies right around the same area and they're all charging the same amount. And they would use that as a basis to say that this is a reasonable charge based on just a survey of what people are charging in the area. Now, with the no-fault reforms, we have fee caps in place. And those fee caps would say that A provider that is um, charging for no-fault services can only charge at the most, or excuse me, can only be reimbursed at the most two times the Medicare rate. And that's a a decreasing scale. So it goes down to 195 and um, continually down, you know, as the years go on until it hits the floor. But with that, we have seen that medical providers have experienced a massive decrease in revenue. They were receiving, you know, unheard of amounts of revenue for their bills just before these reforms took place in 2019 and the fee caps went into place in 2021. And now that revenue has decreased uh, exponentially. So in response to that decrease in revenue, we've seen them use other 
schemes and other exotic means of coding to replace that revenue. And not, and we're not talking about all providers, but there's a certain class of medical providers that specialize in doing you know more exotic coding, more exotic billing, so that way they can still recover certain amount of revenue that's been lost. So it became far more important after reforms, even though it was important before, but now we're just seeing it really on the rise. And I feel like some of those uh, schemes, if you will, um, that were that these providers are using are these, this unbundling, this upcoding. So I want to jump right into that. What is unbundling? I've heard this phrase uh, in, in multiple situations. And how can adjusters identify, you know, unbundling when they see it? Well, that's um, that's definitely one of the things that we have seen a, a ton of. And there's still a lot of uncertainty with the no-fault reforms. One area of uncertainty is whether or not we're just taking the amounts of money that is listed in whatever specific fee schedule that might apply to the services or prospective payment system that might apply to the services that are being rendered by the provider, or whether or not the Medicare billing and payment methodologies apply. So Medicare billing and payment methodologies include things like bundling. So for example, if a provider is providing a, a, a surgery, there are certain things that are included in the surgical code. There are, it, it would be the, um, the equivalent of having a service that includes, you know, me giving you gauze, me giving you uh, a, a, a suture, me giving you different things. And all these things are generally included in one code. But if a provider wants to, and if a provider does not believe that they have to follow Medicare payment methodologies, they could literally unbundle everything. So for example, just giving you a very simple example, if I was to go to the emergency room or if I was to go to a doctor and I had a, a cut on my arm and it required stitches, well, the doctor might have to first uh, use some anesthetic to, to make sure that I wouldn't get any type of uh, infection. Then they might have to use, I don't know, three, four, five sutures. Then after that, they might put some gauze on the top of it. Then after that, they might wrap it with a bandage. Then they may send me on my way. All that can be included in one code. And I'm just giving a basic example here. But a provider, if they were seeking to unbundle things, they could say, well, the anesthetic pad is separate. Each suture I'm billing for separately. Each piece of gauze I'm billing for separately and completely unbundle the procedure. Now, that's one example that I'm just trying to use to give you the basic idea. Usually, that's not the way we see things being billed. What we'll generally see is that, for example, uh, there's coding methodology that would say if you're getting a set of tests, you know, blood tests, that it can all be billed as one code and we can have providers trying to unbundle that and bill it as separate codes. And the purpose of doing that is that they would get more money for billing things each separate code than billing one inclusive code that includes everything. And once again, just a scheme to get more revenue for doing the exact same services that normally would be reimbursed under one billing code. Absolutely. And so let's say, you know, there's an active suit for a surgery and we see this unbundling. How can attorneys um, use that as a defense in an active suit in order to limit the amount that the provider can actually bill? 
certainly. And I think the, the big key here is, one, you know, when we're talking about no-fault claims or even other types of claims, the reasonable way um, or, or the industry standard, the, the way that things are normally done in every other setting, they should still be done that same way in a, a auto lawsuit or a slip and fall claim. And I think the defense is that this is not the normal way things are done. This is not generally accepted in the medical billing and coding community. And you will really want to utilize your expert. And many times that is the way that we are presenting that type of evidence. We'll have a billing and coding expert or um, another expert that will speak to the, the bills and the rates and things of that nature that can say, I work in this community. I am an expert in this area of medicine or excuse me, area of billing and coding. And this is the generally accepted standard. This is generally how things are done. And what this provider or what this biller is doing is not generally accepted. This is something that is generally not accepted. And what our experts usually rely upon are the documentation that is put out by the American Medical Association that defines CPT codes. And those are the types of things that we want to present at the time of testimony. In addition to the American Medical Association, there are other authoritative sources that most experts are going to be familiar with. We have the NCCI, which is the National Correct Coding Initiative. Also, there's the American Association of Medical Audit Specialists, and all those entities put out guidance regarding coding, regarding billing, and how claims should be submitted. Awesome. All good information. I guess, you know, what are the consequences of unbundling? Sure. There, well, number one, if it's in the Medicare and the Medicaid realm, many times there can be QUITAM lawsuits filed. You can have the federal government coming after you for doing those types of things. There are uh, many examples. I'll just give you one, but there was a lawsuit just recently about a chiropractor that was billing for an established patient evaluation and management code along with a manipulation code on the same visit every single time. And because the evaluation and management code included a brief manipulation session, that chiropractor ended up being sued and had to reimburse all the money that he had received for billing in that manner. Wow, that seems like a, a heavy consequence, but also one that's really important to know about, um, especially for our adjusters out there knowing about unbundling and how it can be used uh, in the no-fault realm. Um, I guess I want to switch a little bit to upcoding. What is upcoding? I feel like it's something I haven't heard of as much as I've heard of unbundling. So what is it and how can it be identified? So upcoding is is similar. Um, I would say it's, a, it's maybe the brother or sister to unbundling, but it's when a healthcare provider uses a higher paying code on a patient's claim form in order to falsely claim that the provider performed a more costly procedure than what was actually performed. For example, if a nurse performs a patient or performs a service for a patient, but the code submitted is one required as if the doctor performed the same service. Or sometimes we'll see a patient that's given a very simple x-ray, but the code submitted is for a more comprehensive set of x-rays. So uh, you'll see many examples of this. Sometimes it will be a doctor visiting with a patient 
for a routine issue, um, but is submitted as a complete medical exam or an initial evaluation. So all those are examples of when we may see a bill being submitted for something that is more serious than what was actually done. And I think it's really important then to dig through the medical records, to dig through you know everything we have through discovery to, in order to identify upcoding, right? It's not something that's going to jump out at you on a HICFA form, right? Certainly. And, and it's very important to look at the records and even sometimes ask the patient. For example, there, there could be times where a patient could walk into an office and sit in a massage chair for 20 minutes. And we could see that a physical therapy entity is billing as if they did a hand massage and they actually touch that patient. Those codes mean two completely different things. And it's important to realize whether or not a person is putting their hands on a patient, a person is actually sitting in a massage chair. All those are elements of billing and coding fraud that really would not be uncovered unless you're looking at the records and comparing them to what is being done for a patient, whether through that patient's own statements or otherwise getting that information. And also very important to take the patient's step, take the doctor's step, get their testimony, their sworn testimony as to what actually happened and compare those things to the medical records. Love that. Thanks, Fred. All right. So you dove in a little bit earlier to Medicare, Medicaid, billing fraud, but I guess, you know, big picture, if, if a provider is charged federally with Medicare, Medicaid fraud, what does that mean for, you know, an active no-fault suit? Um, or, or does it mean anything for an active no-fault suit? It certainly does mean um, something for an active no-fault suit. And and let me just give you an example. The city of Dallas paid $2.5 million to resolve a lawsuit filed alleging that over a four-year period, the city up-coded ambulance transport claims. Specifically, the city coded every 911 dispatch transport at the advanced life support level rather than the basic life support level, regardless of the patient's condition or the type of care that was given. Now, I know you're saying that that's a a Medicare, a Medicaid uh, claim, and that is something that uh, isn't exactly a no-fault claim, but let me explain how that could apply in the no-fault realm. And we just had a recent case here. It was the Hartford case versus Greater Lakes Ambulatory in the Eastern District of Michigan, where Greater Lake, or yes, where Greater Lakes Ambulatory ended up having to pay back $652,000, actually over $652,000. And that was for no fault claims that were submitted that were, that had unlawful billing codes. And the reason why that case is important is because of a few things. The case really stands for the proposition that CPT codes are material representations. When you give a CPT code on a billing form, you are representing things associated with that CPT code as that CPT code is defined by the American Medical Association. Because CPT codes are used generally by healthcare providers and insurers to describe the procedures and the services performed by the providers. the, The case also went through the fact that insurers rely on providers to use the CPT code that most accurately reflects the service that is provided. And in this case, the the court ruled that a medical provider commits coding fraud when that provider submits a CPT code that does not accurately represent the services that were performed, knowing the codes are false or submitting them recklessly without any knowledge of their truth, 
and with the intention that the insurer will rely upon them, and lastly, that the insurer has suffered some injury due to the reliance on that medical provider's assertions. And in the Greater Lakes case, I know many people may remember this, but they were doing a lot of these P-STEM procedures, and they were coding them as though they were actual surgeries. So we have a surgery center that is submitting billing codes as if a surgery is performed when a surgery didn't actually occur. And based on the amount of money that Hartford had paid out on these claims, they were able to get reimbursement because they were able to prove that when these codes were submitted, they were false or they were submitted recklessly without any knowledge of their truth for the purpose of getting money from that insurance carrier. Well, that's huge news. And I, I bet you this is just, you know, tip of the iceberg. I bet you there's tons more to learn uh, from you in, in different fraud trends that we've been seeing. I think this means we have to have you back again for another Friday Fraud with Fred. It would be my pleasure. All right. Well, thanks so much. That's all the time we have today, at least. Uh, we hope you learned something on this episode of the Novara Law Podcast. Until then, catch us next time on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just search the words Novara Law Podcasts. Thank you so much, Fred, and thank you for listening. Have a great day.